0: The Energy Gang is brought to you by Renesola, a Tier 1 solar cell and module manufacturer with a decade of experience in the clean tech industry. Renasola is your complete procurement provider of clean energy solutions. The company is now offering a bundled solution for residential installers looking to reduce procurement costs and drive down the cost of projects. To find your local representative, go to renasola.us. that's R-E-N-E-S-O-L-A.us, or give them a call at 415 570 2647. For the week of April 9th, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a senior editor with Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the show. In our program this week, We are joined by the CEO of NRG Home to chat about the company's push into solar and home energy management, which it brands as personalized power. Then we'll take a peek at Rocky Mountain Institute's latest report on grid defection, and we'll wrap up with the conversation about California's severe drought. Are tech entrepreneurs ignoring an opportunity to address a crisis in their own backyard? Usually in my backyard of Washington, D.C., but in New Orleans this week, it is Catherine Hamilton. She's back after spring break, and she's a partner with 38 North Solutions. How was your vacation, Catherine?
1: Yeah, it was wonderful. The Blue Bonnets were in bloom, and it was uh, a much-needed break.
0: What's got you in New Orleans?
1: I'm here for a conference of the Women's Energy Network. I'm the president of the D.C. chapter, and there are about 300 women down here. Honestly, most of them are in the oil and gas business, so I'm learning about things like land men that I didn't even know existed. Um, but it's really great because it really is cross-sector and a great group of Very wonderful women.
0: Yet another organization that you are either the chair of or president of.
2: (laughs) There
1: are only a few extraordinary
0: women like
2: Catherine at the upper (laughs) echelons of our industry.
0: (laughs) Which is why she is part of the Energy Gang. And that was Jigger Shah. He is the president of Generate Capital. He's in New York. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm taking the ups and
2: downs. We had this beautiful weather on Monday, and now it's cold, and I've got my winter coat back out. So...
0: You know, per the end of our podcast last week, you said you wanted to talk about the Iranian nuclear deal. I had it on my list, but you decided to kill it. Why the change of heart?
2: Well, I thought we covered it a little bit. I mean, you know, the the Iranian deal is an interesting deal for oil and gas and nuclear and other things, but there's so much extraordinary news that came out this last week.
0: Well, I thought it was funny to see people's reactions to Ernest Moniz's hair now that he's been thrust into the mainstream news coverage because a lot of people are just seeing it now. Well, Um, look, I think a safety helmet's good for everybody. (laughs) Well, our guest this week has some pretty astounding hair as well. If Ernest Moniz looks like the Prince Valium of Spaceballs, then Steve McBee, the CEO of NRG Home, looks like David Beckham. Steve, welcome to the show. Uh, We don't dish compliments out like that all the time, so it's your lucky day. How are you?
3: I mean, David, this interview can only go downhill from here. I mean, David Beckham, I'll take that. (laughs)
0: and you're in Washington this week right so you're you, you go between San Francisco and Washington
3: I do I do today uh it would be a much better day to be in San Francisco than Washington where it feels like February here but um uh yeah I am in Washington and look I'm delighted to be uh to be with you and Catherine and Jigger I think that um you know this is a great show and always informative and substantive and so I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you all
0: well, we brought you on the show to talk about NRG's strategy to go beyond the power plant and become a cutting-edge energy delivery company focused on distributed energy, renewables, and customization. It's helpful to start with some background first. So NRG is a competitive energy supplier serving, I believe it's 11 U.S. states. It started as a wholesale subsidiary of XL Energy, but in 2003, filed for bankruptcy protection as trading markets collapsed in the wake of the Enron scandal. And the company emerged shortly after from bankruptcy protection in 2004, buying up more power plants as demand for electricity strengthened, and eventually the company moved into retail markets. In 2009, NRG pushed into renewables in earnest and started buying up or developing some of the biggest solar and wind projects in the world. And the biggest shift for the company, arguably, came last August when NRG split up its business into three different entities, NRG Business, NRG Home, and NRG Renew. And the home arm includes retail sales, residential solar, residential EV charging, and home energy management. So uh, Steve McBee was hired last November to run NRG Home and help turn the company into the electricity equivalent of an Amazon or Google. At least that's how... CEO David Crane described it, no pressure there. So Steve, (laughs) so help us understand how an energy company creates the same kind of brand and, uh, and customer centric services as a leading consumer tech company. What does it mean to be the Apple, Amazon, or Google of electricity delivery?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a great challenge. It's a great question. I mean, first of all, I think to believe in the idea of energy home, you have to believe that consumer energy markets are on the edge of being significantly disrupted, not unlike the disruptions that virtually every one of our pure consumer categories have experienced over the last 10 or 15 years. And I think the thing that's really interesting when you look at what's happened in those industries that have either been disrupted or are right now going through wrenching change of the type that I believe is coming to consumer energy is that you know, the thing that really gets the attention right, in, 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 uh, in transport markets or retail markets or, or uh, tourism markets or publishing or, um, or you know any of these markets that are going through a lot of changes is the technology that has been put into the hands of consumers. And I think, in fact, it's true, there is some really killer technology um, you know, that consumers could never even have dreamed of 10 years ago that they take for granted today. But I think that the takeaway for us at Energy Home and for the energy industry writ large is what that technology enables uh, or has enabled, which is the upending of the long standing sort of traditional centralized provider driven models of service with uh, you know, consumer driven distributed. Um, demand driven models of service which have empowered the consumer in the marketplace at the individual level in ways that are really unprecedented and so i think for the energy industry writ large this is a big challenge right because you know the, the energy industry is not using used to thinking about the customer experience when they think about what's on the other end of the product that they provide you know they think about everything but the customer they think about the meter they think about line capacity there's not been a lot of thought given uh, you know, given to the, the consumer as an individual. And that's a huge state change. And it's one that at NRG Home, you know, it, it's the most important thing we're doing is to put the consumer at the center of how we think about everything we do, right? How we think about the business model, how we think about the strategy, and how we think about delivering value. Because what we think, Stephen, is that in the future, consumers are going to want from their energy providers the same things that they expect from all of the other providers that they do business with. They're going to want products that are reliable, that are convenient, that are tailored to their needs. And I think in the case of energy, they're also going to want products that are sustainable. So, I mean, I think this is the great challenge of our businesses to really understand how to tap into that.
0: You said they're the future, and I'm just curious, how ready do you think consumers are today, right? The technologies are getting there. The rate design is still way behind but starting to catch up. Regulators are starting to think about tiered rates and rates based on geographic need. But the consumers, right? I mean, personalized power is a pretty big deal. And they've been used to homogenous product for so long. Um, How ready are they today?
3: I think more ready than consensus assumes. I mean, you know, when we look at the edge of these markets where the adopter markets are today, they're non-trivial, right? Our own internal, um, you know, research and analysis puts it at about 18% of uh, of Americans or about 22 million homes, right, are ready for. Uh, energy solutions and services that are more personal, that allow them more control, that allow them to, you know, manage their energy at different levels. And, you know, what's interesting about that, I think, just to take it a little bit further is a couple of things. One is those consumers that that are that represent those adopter markets, they're willing to pay a bit more, right, for for those kinds of products and services. And they're willing to exchange data for them in order to get the personalization features that they that they that they you know get in the other products and services that they use and in non energy markets and so um, you know it's nothing like mainstream but a 22 million you know um, consumer market as a starting point isn't bad and I think you know when we look at those market trends and how they trend up. You know, it's driven by, you know, a lot of different things. But I think the X factor, you know, is the extent to which millennials are really emerging as a, you know, as a hugely powerful um, force in the consumer market space. And, you know, as those... Uh, as those consumers start to own homes and start to gain more purchasing power, you know, we think our vision for personal power, you know, for products and services that allow people to generate and manage and ultimately share more of their energy, right? We think those markets are going to be really meaningful. And so, you know, I guess, you know, to answer your question, the future is already here, right? If you look at technology, technology adoption, And you look at sort of, you know, early adopter markets, but the future is going to, you know, continue to accelerate. And, you know, we think that these ideas, you know, which right now are still a bit on the edge, you know, by 2020 are going to be very mainstream.
2: So, Steve, you know, the most important question I have to ask is who got paid the (laughs) $100,000?
3: Well, you know, that's um, Tom Doyle who runs um, our other growth business, Renew. Was uh, you know was the one who um, who put me into the crowdsource um, crowd search for this job. So
0: yeah, that's right. I just want to fill our it's- listeners in for those who don't know. NRG did one of I think the first crowdsourced executive search for NRG Home and offered a hundred thousand dollars for the uh, winning suggestion. So Tom Doyle of NRG Renew actually. Uh, made the suggestion to hire you after uh, you had a dinner with with David Crane correct you guys talked and realized that you had a lot in common and that's how things move forward
3: yeah I mean one one point on Tom is, is to say that there was one caveat in that search was which was if the winner was selected by an NRG employee um you know, the the $100,000 went to the charity of that person's choice. So, you know, Tom got to do some good in the world, but he didn't necessarily get to do some good for his wallet. But I still appreciate that he put me
0: in play. um, Well, if you do a good job, then everyone's wallets will do well over there.
3: That that is the hope. That is the hope. Yeah, David and I, so interestingly, in my previous... You know, before I joined NRG, I had an advisory firm, which I started and scaled up over time. And one of my clients was XPRIZE, um, which I'm sure, you know, Stephen and Catherine and Jigger, you're all familiar with. And I'm sure a lot of your your listeners are also familiar with Peter Diamandis and, you know, the, um, you know, the work that XPRIZE has done. And so David and I were at an XPRIZE conference, which is where we met and we ended up having dinner there. And, you know, we had a, a really rapid meeting of the minds on, you know, um, where energy markets were going, where consumer trends were going, what we thought technology was going to mean to energy markets being disrupted. And, you know, I really, um, I was struck then by David's vision, you know, for where the world was going, but I was more, um, you know, I was more inspired by the fact that David wasn't just talking about it, but, you know, David and NRG and the NRG leadership was putting real chips, you know, to the middle of the table and in, in making that bet. It's easy to talk about it. It's a lot harder to do. And um, it was the doing, you know, that inspired me to to join them and to help them, you know, hopefully, you know, do more and do faster.
1: Yes, yeah, Steve, um, as sort of a wonky person, it came as a big news item to me that NRG, um, which has, has the second largest generation fleet in the U.S., broke with the EPS, um, EPSA, the Electric Power Supply Association, which is the Association for Generators, to file an amicus brief um, to the Supreme Court in support of Order 745 to produce- Protect demand response. And I just, I saw that and I thought, oh, wow, that must have to do with NRG Home. So I'd love to hear more about how demand response fits into your business model.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, um, the larger, you know, issue that you raised there is an interesting one for NRG, right? Because, I mean, NRG is a company that's very much in transition. I mean, the bulk of our business still lies in the, you know, in the traditional generation space. Um, While at the same time, you know, we have meaningful investments and effort and energy being put into, um, you know, the growth businesses, you know, of Renew, which is the large-scale utility, you know, energy part of the business and home, which is consumer-facing part of the business. And so, you know, (laughs) as a company for NRG – thinking about the policy matrix which is a really important risk variable for all of the businesses um, is an interesting um, you know is an interesting um, challenge but I think you know in terms of demand response I mean I think it's you know it's one of the things you know that we're looking at along with the entire suite of you know DG technologies and again what we sort of call you know personal power technologies to try to figure out how the puzzle pieces fit together to meet the consumers where we think they're going to be living, you know, in 2020. And when I think about 2020, you know, not, not to diverge too much here, but there was, you know, I, I usually, I, I'm an avid reader of the New Yorker, which really means I'm just an avid subscriber of it. And I watch the magazines pile up on my floor because I can never, <laughs> you know, I can never get to all of the articles that I want to read, but there was a great article Um, A few weeks ago in the New Yorker that profiled Johnny Ives, who's the head of Apple product design, and he said something in this, you know, 26 page portfolio piece on him, the profile piece on him that really struck me, which he said, when Apple thinks about product design and strategy, we try not to come in with our own aesthetic or our our own strong ideas about what we think the future is going to look like. Instead, we try to imagine what's going to feel rational and inevitable in terms of the future to our consumers and I mean I thought that was just a really simple and powerful way to sort of you know to look at how you think about strategy and product mixes and to me it seems rational and inevitable that in 2020 a lot of consumers are not only going to want to but expect to be able to generate more of their own energy to be able to control more of their own energy to be able to access that energy from wherever they are for whatever they need it for. And ultimately, through things like community solar to be able to share, you know, that energy either in their communities or, you know, in broader markets that are, you know, that are lubricated by peer to peer infrastructure, which is, you know, enabled sharing economies, you know, in other other industries. And so, you know, we think about demand response certainly as a piece of the puzzle, but, you know, really the goal is to, you know, step back and try to understand what are all the moving pieces and how can they be knitted together in a way that makes sense and then how can we customize those solutions to our customers based on where they live and based on what they need to make their, you know, their energy-consuming lives work. Steve, the
2: challenge I have with this thesis is that I mean, under your purview is the retail business, for instance, for NRG. None of that stuff is true for the retail business, right? I mean, you're basically just slogging it out with Green Mountain Energy and some of these other guys you know, every single day to try to save somebody a penny and get them to convert to your business, right? And so, I mean, I love Apple. I love all these other guys. But those are consumer. In this space, everyone's got electricity connected to their Uh, home, right? These are commodity businesses. Getting people to pay a premium for a commodity business is really damn hard. I mean, how do you guys look to bridge that?
3: Yeah, no, it's I mean, it's a great question. And it's incredibly hard. I think, you know, you're right about the retail business. And, you know, we are going to be doing some things in that business that I think, um, you know, will be very non-consensus by the standards of that industry in terms of the consumer experience that we're seeking to provide. Because, I mean, you know, at Energy Home, you know, we can't just be great at the consumer, consumer experience in our solar business or in our portable power business or in our connected home business. I mean, we have to be great everywhere, including in the retail business, where the, 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 the market construct there and the, the deep commoditization of that market makes that difficult. But we're going to do some things that I think, you know, uh, you know, we could talk about at some point in the future that I think will be interesting. But, you know, Jigger, what I think is, right, the, the real strategic value of the retail business to the overall home franchise right now is... You know, one the fact that it produces six billion dollars of revenue and 650 million you know dollars or so of EBITDA every year, which you know provides us with a lot of stability. You know, in a business that's populated you know otherwise by industries that are still very early stage and still have volatility and uncertainty in terms of their growth trajectories. And obviously we're also able to you know use uh, some of that EBITDA to invest in those businesses, which is a big advantage. but I think that the the biggest advantage of the retail franchise is the three million customers that we serve, and the potential that that creates for us to cross sell um, our growth businesses into into that customer channel i mean you know and and i have great respect for for solar city as a competitor and as a business and i think they've been incredible pioneers in the residential solar space but you know they they talk a lot about you know getting to you know uh you know a million customers i think is their target by 2020 or whatever we start with three million customers now not all those customers today are in places that are solar economic but, you know, as you all know, that's changing quickly. And so we feel great about that business as both, you know, a financier of, you know, our growth businesses on the other side, but also as a as a as a you know, really efficient, low cost channel for our portable power services and our uh, our solar business and our connected home suite of services and other things um that we're looking at doing. So and, and and over time, you know, very likely our own businesses on the growth side will begin to cannibalize our retail business. And you know, that's um you know, I think I think we, we absolutely see that happening.
0: Well that's a really interesting point here. And a lot of investors have expressed their skepticism over this strategy. Many of them spoke up at the Investor Day in, in January and that question was whether the solar business, the home efficiency business is going to eat into your retail sales. Is the, op- is the opportunity for the install, the energy services in the home bigger than the, the kilowatt hour sales for you? That seems to be what you're saying, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, we think that it's going to be, and we think that you know the economics of those customer relationships... Um, on solar and on the other products coming behind them will be stronger for us than the economics um, of, our, of our retail relationships. And so, you know, the, the, the challenge for us is to make sure that we have a line of sight into, you know, how quickly one set of markets will be emerging and how quickly another set of markets will be declining and to make sure that we've got the right products and the right controls in place to manage that transition, you know, in, in an intelligent way.
1: Um, So, Stephen, I wanted to ask you a little bit about policy, because there was a mention um, in an interview that you thought it was irrelevant. And yet I know that based on your past work, you've certainly um, made the the pitch to clients that protecting and growing their business is very important because of policy. So I would love to hear more about how you're feeling about policy.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, right now, um, certainly at the state level, and even below the state level, you know, at the, at the PUC level and in certain, you know, regional governing um, bodies, I mean, policy really is important. And, you know, um, these, you know, state decisions on net metering and on other, you know, issues that are going to really impact, you know, the growth curves and the adoption rates of solar and other emerging technologies. I mean, it matters a lot. Um, what I think doesn't matter a lot right now is Washington. And it's unfortunate because, you know, we're at a time where you know we have multiple existential crises brewing um, as a country and you know as a global community that cry out for political leadership and cry out for policy signals to address them. You know this is global warming, it's resource depletion, it's population growth and urbanization, and you know it's the extent to which any one of those challenges is you know is really significant on its own, but that they're all happening concurrently and and to a certain degree each makes the other kind of a harder challenge, you know, the lack of political leadership in Washington and the lack of, you know, political, political leadership globally in addressing those challenges is disappointing. I wish policy were massively relevant right now because it should be, but it isn't because the debate in Washington on energy is, um, it's become so polarized and it's become so political and frankly um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's a small debate you know, with an absence of facts um, and, and a whole lot of, um, you know, a whole lot of heat. And so one of the reasons that I was inspired by the opportunity at NRG is I concluded a couple of years ago that if these really big challenges you know, facing the world were going to be addressed. It wasn't going to come from the policymaking community. It was going to come from large corporations who could view these huge challenges as opportunities, right? Not just challenges, but opportunities, could take a market-based approach to solve for them. And in creating, you know, new service models, new products and new solutions could create a ton of shareholder value, but along the way could also produce some meaningful um, and very positive social change and i felt like NRG was a really good expression and NRG home in particular was a really powerful expression of that idea um, and so i i uh so, you know, that was a really big factor in why I made the decision to sell the consulting firm that I had started and grown over about a 12-year period to come in and take the opportunity at NRG Home. So I think, Catherine, the way I would answer your question is I think it matters a lot at the state level. I think there's some incredibly progressive policy coming out of places like California and New York with REV. I think there are some really important policy battles that are coming out in states um, all over the country, and that does matter. I think what matters less is the place that you know you and I are sitting today in Washington, and it's too bad because it should matter a lot.
0: So then, when you think about growth strategy, is this going to come through organic growth on your behalf, given the businesses that you've acquired to date and the services you've built up internally? Um, is this going to come from that, or is this going to come from more acquisitions?
3: I mean, we have to do it all. I mean, we, we you know, the first thing we need to do is, you know, home's four months old, right? It's a collection of businesses that have just been brought together for purposes of going out and winning this large consumer opportunity, you know, that we see in front of us. And and you know, so the first thing that we need to do to be successful is we need to really build a deep foundation that connects and knits all those businesses together, that provides an unbelievable consumer experience and that really animates and puts to work the cross-sell potential that exists between our growth businesses and our retail business. And then the second thing we need to do, we have four, uh, you know, four markets where we come to market in. We have our, res- our retail energy franchise. We have our residential solar business. We have the work that we're doing in Connected Home. And we have the products and solutions that we're scaling up in our portable power business which is anchored by an acquisition that we did uh, last October of a company called Goal Zero. Um, and so, so those four businesses, portable power, connected home, residential, solar, and retail, we have to, we have to stand those, scale those businesses up, get them you know, rocking their, their individual markets, getting them putting together um, you know, creative and integrated bundles of solutions Um, that, that we're selling to our three and a half million customers. And then we need to figure out what comes next, right? We're looking at water technology. We're looking at lighting efficiency. We're looking at storage. We love community solar. So, you know, the idea is operationalize the platform and get it as efficient as it can be as quickly as possible and harden it for the scaled business that we anticipate building over the next three to five years make sure that we're tier one in the businesses that we come to market in today and then make sure that we're entering in a very strategic way secondary opportunities that we think can create meaningful value to our consumers and meaningful value to our shareholders and get those businesses stood up and integrated with our four core businesses and that's how we think. We're, that's how we think we're successful in owning, you know, that 2020 goal we have of being the dominant consumer energy brand, um, you know, in the United States.
0: Steve McBee is the CEO of NRG Home, and he joined us from Washington D.C. Steve, thanks so much.
3: Thanks for having me. It's been great talking to all of you.
0: We've got a lot of solar installers who listen to this show. Who knows? Maybe uh, some work for NRG Home, and we know you're all smart. So. Put that intelligence to work and consider a bundled equipment solution from renasola renasola manufactures and distributes solar panels inverters racking systems and even battery systems think about the savings and procurement and shipping costs you could realize by choosing renasola's bundled offerings for residential systems and think about the time you could save as well renasola has coast-to-coast warehouses across the u.s and 40 global subsidiaries and has next day delivery To find your local rep and see your equipment solutions, go to renasola.us or give them a call at 415-570-2647. Regular listeners may remember that grid defection topped my list of the most overblown stories of 2014. And what I argued uh, in December, and what I still believe, is that defection is a very unlikely scenario and that concerns about people going completely off-grid in droves are in my opinion, foolish, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't use grid defection as a guide for where distributed generation should bring us, a possible extreme outcome that helps us understand a range of scenarios. That's what the folks at the Rocky Mountain Institute, Homer Energy, and Cohn Resnick did last February when they released a report on solar plus storage and the economics of grid defection. Longtime listeners will remember our interview with RMI's John Kreitz on the report, still very relevant, and I recommend you go back and listen to it. RMI is out with an update to that report this week. Instead of framing the analysis of behind-the-meter solar and storage around grid defection, the authors frame it around load defection. Sure, most people aren't going to go completely off-grid, but when a large number of them do uh, and use the grid for just a little bit of backup, the consequences for utilities could be just as bad. By 2030, the analysts conclude that utilities in the Northeast could lose 50% of their residential sales and 60% of their commercial sales as solar and batteries become more competitive. Catherine, um, do you agree with me that load defection is a more accurate term than grid defection? Do you like that term?
1: Yes. Although, I mean to the normal person they wouldn't know the difference probably. We're
0: talking um, to the geekiest of the geeks. Yeah, okay. We're
1: talking to the geeks here. I I get that. So, one of the keys here is that at the same time that you're getting better cost scenarios for grid plus solar, grid or grid plus solar or grid plus solar plus battery or defection, at the same time the grid is going to need 2 trillion dollars worth of investment between 2010 and 2020. Um to just upgrade what's there because the grid is aging, it needs more modern equipment. And the costs for all of this investment are recovered through revenues. Um, and if those revenues are going down, then how do you invest in the grid? So this is kind of the tricky piece is like, how do we then manage this? And they point to kind of two pathways, which I think are interesting. And yet I think they're, it's probably going to fall somewhere. In between those pathways, where you have a path one with a very integrated grid and a path two with a lot of grid defection, and the integrated grid pathway is certainly more um, has a much sunnier scenario for most most of the utilities now. And grid defection wouldn't, but actually, grid defection doesn't help in the end consumers as much as an integrated grid could potentially do. I actually think we're going to end up falling somewhere in between with more community systems. But I don't know that wasn't addressed in this. I'd I'd be interested. In 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 hearing what Jigger has to say about those two paths. Yeah,
2: look, I mean, I think that when we talk about grid defection, we talk a lot about residential because, I don't know, it just seems easier to talk about. But I'm at a conference today in New York City where there's a whole bunch of people here who are talking about um, the defection of corporate campuses, the defection of uh, university campuses, the defection of large buildings in um, New York who want to be more resilient. And what they're saying is, we're going to put in, you know, cogeneration, and we're just going to disconnect ourselves from the grid because the standby charges that the grid's charging us is so expensive that it's actually cheaper for us to disconnect.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting when they look at the co- They look at the economics, and they and people say, "Oh, well, solar and storage is going to be too expensive." But if you have a system like that, where you where you take the pure cost, but then you take off the reduced demand charges because you're not going to have those charges, you increase the ability to do ancillary services if you're still connected to the grid. But then there's all these externalities that you mentioned like resilience and backup power that I think are big drivers in this as well that we're not even taking that into consideration when we look at cost.
0: Yeah, notable here is that they didn't factor in net metering, feed-in tariffs, compensation related to avoided cost. They stripped a lot of that out there and just looked at the cost reductions in the technology itself, which was pretty remarkable. So you're looking at in the next five to 15 years, some pretty stark changes in uh, markets other than Hawaii, where power prices are through the roof. Well, and
2: PG&E, where power prices are through the roof. I mean, PG&E is averaging between 4 and 6% rate increases per year. At some point, people in California are going to be paying an average of $0.30 cents a kilowatt hour in the next few years. And when that occurs, I mean, I don't see how we don't get grid defection and, you know, and this becomes exponential. If you listen to what Steve McBee is talking about NRG, when this occurs, it occurs exponentially. It doesn't occur linearly. So I think everyone thinks, oh, the utilities are going to have another 20 years to sort of duke it out. No, they're going to have five years. And then at the end of five years, they're going to start losing one to 3% of their entire load per year.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The, the numbers look really bad for central generation, transmission, and vertically integrated utilities. But the on the good news side, certainly solar PV and storage looks good, but also the distribution grid operators. So if it's a decoupled system, those folks, like the ones in New York, are going to be able to make more of a business case than, than a uh, vertically integrated utility would be able to.
0: Do you think a report like this makes its way around a utility boardroom?
1: I would think so. I mean – this, they're looking at this. They're also looking at EPRI's integrated grid study. I mean, I think the utilities are probably thinking about this every day. Well, This you- is the
2: only reason why RMI has published this study. The only reason they published it was the first segment of the report got so much play by the utilities, utility boardrooms, and Morgan Stanley and other stock analysts that they said, well, if it works, we should publish a second report.
0: I always think about the conversations going on within utilities about this. When, I mean, the industry has banded together to push for fees on net metering or demand charges and has pushed this in every market that they can. And you look at what RMI, what Morgan Stanley and others have said. They said, well, this is just delay the inevitable. Fixed charges may delay this by a few years, but eventually consumers might get fed up with fixed charges and actually seek to disconnect themselves from the grid Precisely to avoid those charges. And then as grid services get more expensive, as more people do that, you get into this death spiral, for lack of a better phrase. And, uh, you know, this is yet more economic proof, at least, that those scenarios are possible. And that although in the short term they could delay the adoption of distributed generation, they're looking at fairly unstoppable economic forces.
1: Well, the thing that struck me at the very beginning of the report was that banks are noticing. And if the banks notice – that will get their attention. Yeah, look, I, you know, I think that the
2: part that I think is just confusing for people is how fast this is coming. When you think about the 1996 Telecom Act and when it passed, AT&T was a very healthy company. By 1999, it was pack- practically bankrupt. It was purchased by SBC and then renamed AT&T. That's why the brand still exists. But AT&T was losing 1% of their customers a month by the end there. Right. For, you know, for landline phones, it's not like this, this business is going to have grid defections of 1% a month, but you could see the utilities losing one to 3% of their load per year. And when you lose your load and still have to build $20 billion worth of infrastructure, Per year for transmission distribution upgrades. That means you have to raise rates by 4 to 6% a year because you're not able to spread it over this large number of consumers. And that's what creates the death spiral. So I think the death spiral is absolutely the perfect word. I think the utilities are trying to savor a few more years of dividend yields before the end starts to come.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting that you're pointing to uh, the commercial side, large industrial grid defection, folks like you, know, you could see someone like an Amazon or a Google or a Walmart, and then they could then sell those services back to residential customers. So I could see where you have grid defection of a certain type class of customer, and then those folks are able to you know, put apps together or products like what NRG was talking about, Um, that can then, that provides the tipping point for all the homeowners to come.
0: And that's precisely why a company like NRG claims to not be too worried about load defection because they think they can make the money off of the services on top. So we'll see if that actually plays out as planned. Uh, Check out the report. It's really good. Another fabulous iteration to this conversation. And we've got it linked to the RMI site on the podcast page. Uh, Third topic, let's talk about the drought in California. Uh, I, of course, do not live in California, but every once in a while I take a peek at the the drought monitor there to check out the map of conditions in the state, and it's really scary. Roughly a third of the state is in exceptional drought conditions, and the other two-thirds are in extreme or severe drought conditions. In late March, we got some pretty dire news when California's Water Resources Department reported uh, virtually no snowpack, like none, in the Sierra Nevadas shortly after Governor Jerry Brown issued water restrictions for the first time in the state's history. Uh, we bring this up because, of course, it has implications for energy. Hydro production is way down in the state, for example. Uh, it also offers offers an important opportunity for cleantech entrepreneurs. Uh, but the problem, say experts, is that there is a lack of funding for water tech in Silicon Valley, at least relative to the amount of money going into consumer tech this week the guardian had a really good story on funding deals showing 12 billion dollars going into tech startups in 2014 and only a few hundred million going into the water sector jigger you asked nancy fund a few podcasts ago about water tech and um i took that out of the final show but it was a really good question and i thought we could talk about it in a future episode um are the are concerns about the lack of vc attention in this space concerning to you well,
2: Katie Fahrenbacher wrote an excellent piece for The Guardian that everyone should read about this. And I think that the answer is that the VC industry is never going to get into water unless you start pricing water. California, which is the land of ballot initiatives, has a ballot initiative that requires the utility companies to sell their goods and services at their price at their cost, right? So they can't really mark it up to send market signals. Today, even tiered rates in California is undergoing a court challenge, um, and we'll see whether tiered rates survive. But unless you price water um, to its uh, to, the, to a proper cost, such that these new technologies can actually compete against that that cost, you're never going to see big VC investment. Yeah, right. yeah,
1: I feel like it's a little bit like the way energy efficiency was, where it's, it's you know called conservation. It's about megawatts. It's not super high tech, and it there are now certainly companies that are doing high tech water, but I think that's kind of where water has been. It's just oh, let's just repair the leaks, and that'll save a lot of water. But that's not something a VC is going to be really interested in. We can't even repair the damn leaks, <laughs> <laughs> right? But those have nothing to do with
2: water, right? So the leaks. That has to do with money in the sense of like you're basically treating water with chemicals and then you're taking clean water and leaking it through pipes. But you don't lose it. It just goes back into the groundwater and you can pump it back up, right? The problem California is having is it simply doesn't have enough water coming in on their income statement. So in terms of water falling on – in the state of California, that they use on an annual basis, they're now going into their balance sheet, which is the storage. And now what NASA is saying is that they only have one year of storage left in their obvious storage places. California has now passed um, an initiative to spend billions of dollars to study their, um, their water situation to figure out exactly how much storage they have. But most of the experts in California are saying is that that study is going to take them 10 to 15 years to complete, to actually get a proper mapping of what their reservoirs look like and how much water is left in their reservoirs. They don't have 10 to 15 years.
0: Well, let's be clear. Most experts who are studying this are not saying that California is going to collapse anytime soon. Uh, so we should be realistic about that. But talking about groundwater is really important because this latest drought is a heat-driven drought. Uh, you know, The last three months in California have been way above average even over last year, which was above average. Uh, and that exacerbates the drought by pulling moisture out of the ground. And that's precisely the type of conditions that will make these kinds of droughts far worse over time in a warming world. And that's very important to remember as we consider how bad this drought has gotten. The The, the heat is sucking more moisture out of the ground than it, it otherwise would.
2: I, but I do think it's important to reinforce the severity of this I think when Governor Brown basically you know made this mandate he was saying oh you know you should use less water at your homes but the bottom line is is that less than ten percent of the water in California is used by people for showering and you know cooking and all sorts of other things um, the vast majority of the water in California is used for industrial cap- applications, for agriculture, for um, irrigation, for you know, for all sorts of other purposes. And those industries were really not um, addressed by you know California's draconian sort of um, mandates. I-, I really do think this is far worse than you're saying it is, Stephen. I think that you're going to see massive um, industries go out of business in California over the next three years if they don't figure out what to do with water.
1: Yeah, and those same industries rely so heavily on energy. So this is all part of a very, very strong connection of energy and water. And so there the the those industries that are energy intensive all are also water intensive.
0: Well, bringing this back to pricing, of course extremely important for companies trying to value the space and figure out how they can get consumers to respond. And uh there was a recent study from the University of California at Riverside that showed different pricing systems for water actually works. And they tracked over 13,000 water users to see how they responded to new pricing systems and uh, that that priced water based upon how much they were using. And water demand dropped steadily, 17% after a few years. So it works. Um, But the problem was it it took a couple years for people to really respond. People did not respond immediately, which is kind of an interesting finding. Uh, But on the behavioral side... You do have companies. I think it should be noted that this company, WaterSmart, that everyone calls the O-power of uh, water consumption, just raised a Series B round worth $7 million, uh, about a week after Governor Brown issued those water restrictions. So there is some money going into this space, but $7 million is absolutely nothing when you consider the scope of the problem.
2: Well, and efficiency is just not going to work. I mean this notion that we're going to figure out a way to use water more efficiently in California and that's going to solve the problem is completely hogwash. The only way this is going to work is by fundamentally changing the way we view water. I'll give you an example. In the Netherlands, people laugh at folks in California because we're using gray water. Um, you know, They're using gray water in the Netherlands for all sorts of purposes. They actually have a separate set of pipes to use the gray water for all of the purposes that aren't for drinking water. In California, they have no such thing. They're putting in a few pipes here and there, but we're actually using fully treated groundwater for watering lawns, for doing the most basic things. It's 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 literally at that fundamental level that we're not even close to global standards.
0: Well, I think that wraps up the show and we will tell our listeners something they do not know. Try to find something novel in our work lives or on the internet. And Catherine, we haven't talked to you in a couple weeks, so what do you have?
1: Sure. I got a note this morning from Louis Miller of the Sierra Club in in uh, Mississippi, and he sent the order, the proposed rule um, from the Mississippi Public Service Commission for net metering and distributed generation interconnection standards. And the rule uh, took the Synapse report that had been commissioned and decided that these policies were in the best interest of the ratepayers. And uh, Louis thinks we're getting started on the right foot here. Um, Comments. uh, There are a lot of questions embedded in this proposed rule, and uh, comments to that are due July 1st. But it's pretty cool that Mississippi is going to be opening up.
0: One more indicator of the boom in the southeast that is already on its way. Jager, tell us something we do not know.
2: Well, there's so many stories that I have to mention a couple. So one is, is that, you know, we had a widespread power outage in DC and, you know, and people still don't seem to understand why that occurred. I, I think it's because Pepco probably wanted um, to, you know, force people to realize how incompetent they really well, are. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It was you a drop in
0: voltage.
1: I, I
2: it
0: was a piece
1: of It was a yeah. piece of equipment.
0: Yeah, I'm but just,
2: that means maintenance. But a it's, number of I
0: mean, that's what it is, it was a piece of equipment that went down, but a number of. Um, generators kicked on all at once, and the voltage dropped, and so that's what caused the back the the blackout. Another version
2: of a third world country grid in, in well, Washington. Well, D.
0: I don't know if you saw the, think... the the new host of the Daily Show, Trevor Noah, tweeted, "Oh, I'm coming to Washington D.C. this week. I hear there are rolling blackouts. Looks like I'll be right at home." He's from South <laughs> Africa, of course. <laughs> And then the other the other thing I wanted to point out was that so Katie Ferrenbacher,
2: our friend, got to um, you know got hired by Time, um, you know I guess at Fortune Magazine, uh, which is owned by Time, and uh, um, so it's good to see the gig people get placed in a good place. But then our, our friend Dave Roberts at, at you know at uh, Grist got uh, picked up by Ezra Klein at at uh, Vox. So I'm yeah, wondering Vox whether is clim- great. Yeah, I'm wondering whether climate and clean tech have finally hit the mainstream. And then the last piece was that Bloomberg just announced another $30 million for the Beyond Coal campaign that's going to be matched by an additional $30 million from donors. So congratulations to the
0: Sierra Club.
1: Yeah, that was awesome.
0: So I don't know if you guys watch The Walking Dead. Do either of you watch that show? Nope. I do not. Well, I love a good post-apocalyptic story. It's a soft spot for me. Even if it's really terrible, I'll watch it. And The Walking Dead blends a little bit of horror, zombies, with – post-apocalyptic storytelling. So I love it. I've been watching it since the beginning and the entire time I've been saying to myself, when is distributed energy going to come into play? When is someone going to use solar? And <laughs> finally in season five, I'm not going to try to give any, any spoilers away. We saw solar panels, micro inverters, storage, and a micro come into play in a very big way. I'll leave listeners that haven't seen the show some time to catch up, but Uh, I was really excited when I saw that DG was finally a part of The Walking Dead, as I'd hoped for for so many seasons. Thanks for listening this week. We're going to be off next week. Um, I'll be at the Solar Summit, but I have some special content planned that I think you'll enjoy. Uh, A listener reached out to me yesterday and told me that he had finished all 79 back episodes and felt like he had finished the first year of a master's course. So you, too, can impress your friends and colleagues with our opinions by listening to all of our shows. Find them at greentechmedia.com slash podcast or at SoundCloud, Stitcher, Radio, and iTunes. And don't forget, we get new listeners from reviews and from word of mouth, and you can go to iTunes or Stitcher to write a review for us or send a link to our show to people who you think you'd like like it, or better yet, do both of those things at the same time. To send uh, along any story ideas or comments, send them to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Catherine, welcome back from vacation. Have a good week. Enjoy New Orleans for however long you're there in your windowless hotel room.
1: Thanks very much. And I hope that uh, after everybody listens to all the podcasts and they start working their way through the first four episodes of Walking Dead.
0: <laughs> they've, got, they've got five seasons to go before they get to the solar part. So it'll take you a few weeks to get there. Jigger, have a good week. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Good news this week. And who better to talk about that news with than Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah? That's right, we are the Energy Gang, a production of GreenTechMedia.com. We're off next week. We'll catch you the week after.